Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. The weather's turning nice and we have a lot of nice articles to talk about today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. First link comes to us from the IEEE Spectrum or IEEE Spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> it's an acronym that stands for the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. And this one's called This Socialite Hated Washing Dishes So Much That She Invented the Automated Dishwasher. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Right? It turns out that the first dishwasher to be granted a patent was invented in 1850 by someone wow. named Joel Houghton. This one was kind of the early prototype. It was a wooden box that used a hand-turned wheel to splash water on dirty dishes, and it had scrubbers. So, man, hmm. you know, first attempt, not too bad. Mm -hmm. But then 10 years later, an inventor named L.A. Alexander improved on this original machine by adding a geared mechanism that allowed the user to spin racked dishes through a tub of water. And it was okay, but the person that we really have to thank for the modern-day dishwasher as we know it is Josephine Cochran. Her machine was the first to use water pressure instead of scrubbers to clean mm. dishes, which made it more efficient than either Houghton or Alexander's versions. And for her invention, she was inducted to the U.S. National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2006. Oh. So she wow. never got to enjoy her accolades, <laughs> but she did enjoy a fair amount of success. Basically, what happened was she married a wealthy merchant, William Cochran, in 1858, and as a socialite, she was expected to hold frequent dinner parties. Mm. So she would serve these meals on expensive heirloom china, but when the household staff hand-washed the dishes, the delicate china often got chipped. She even tried to wash the dishes herself, but after she chipped a few plates, she <laughs> was like, I need to design and build a machine that could handle the task. There's even a quote, according to a profile of her on the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office website, she vowed, quote, if nobody else is going to invent a mechanical dishwashing machine, I'll do it myself. <laughs> Although she had no technical background, she did come from a family of engineers and inventors. For example, her father, John Garris, was a civil engineer who supervised a number of mills near the Ohio River in Illinois. And her great-grandfather, John Fitch, invented the first steamboat to be granted a U.S. patent. So it was kind of in her blood. It was mm. out of her immediate wheelhouse, but she had some good epigenetics in her favor here. <laughs> so she designed her first model in the shed behind her house in Shelbyville, Illinois. She measured the width, height, and length of plates, cups, and saucers and constructed wire compartments for the china to sit in. The compartment separated each piece of dishware. This should all sound super familiar yeah. if you have a dishwasher. Yeah. <laughs> At the bottom of the machine was a container that held soap, and the compartments were placed inside a wheel that laid flat within a copper boiler. A motor powered the wheel, which turned as the soapy water was squirted on the dishes to clean them. Hmm. She got a U.S. patent in 1886 for her machine. 1886. Wow. Yeah, that is really early. I was thinking you were going to say like the 40s maybe. Yeah, like right? that's when all that kind of stuff was coming out, you know, like all these fancy inventions. for mm -hmm. Exactly, oh. for consumers. But what happened was, you know, in 1886, she gets the patent. She advertised the invention in local newspapers and having a higher profile helped her connect with 
with restaurants and hotels who really got the most use out of this early on. And it also connected her with investors. But a lot of investors asked her to resign so the company could be sold to a man. Mm -hmm. However, she refused and continued to fund the business herself. Yep. She wanted to increase her sales, and so she had a brilliant idea to display her machine at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Mm. That was where she got a lot of visibility. She even won an award for the machine's design and durability. After that, orders came pouring in, and she opened a manufacturing facility near Chicago. It was really catching on with the hospitality and restaurant industry, but it wasn't until the 1950s mm-hmm. that dishwashers caught on in households. Some homemakers admitted they enjoyed washing dishes by hand. And part of this is also because a lot of homes built before the 1950s used a furnace to heat water, and not all furnaces at the time could produce enough hot water to run the dishwasher. And you got to think as well, in the early kitchens, there wasn't space for a giant machine. No one had ever said, oh, let's block off a four by four square foot spot in my kitchen for this device that doesn't exist yet. Right. We needed the golden years of post-war boom America to really expand both the square footage of houses, some Mm -hmm. improvements in how hot water was being generated. But it all took off really well. In 1926, her company was acquired by KitchenAid, which is now part of Whirlpool. So it's all been kind of subsumed into the conglomerates. But let us not forget Josephine Cochran. Yeah. I mean, I love this article because it's so much just like, she was just trying to have a good time. And (laughs) (laughs) she got so fed up with that dishwashing business that she started a dishwashing business. I mean, that's pretty amazing to me. Yeah, it was the classic, there's got to be a better way we this caught my eye because we're in the process of replacing our dishwasher that was supposed to come last month then it was supposed to come tomorrow and now it's coming at the end of the month and it's one of the best household robots i can think of sure oh dishwasher (laughs) yeah i actually wash all of my dishes by hand still just because that's how i grew up but my wife is trying to convert me over to the dishwashing practice Mm -hmm. way of life yeah i was raised with the neurotic philosophy that you wash the dishes before you put them in the dishwasher (laughs) So it's kind of the worst of both worlds for me, but. (laughs) Next link. Next link. So this article comes to us from historyextra.com and it is called Eustace the Monk, one of medieval Europe's unholiest holy men. (laughs) I like where this is going. Oh yeah. So this one's a little bit longer, but it's also very lurid and very entertaining. Oh good. Yeah. So. 800 years ago, uh, around 1217, one of the most hated men in England met a grisly end at the Battle of Sandwich, which was fought off the Kent coast on August 24th between the English and French navies. Eustace the monk was on the deck of his ship, vigorously swinging an oar around him as he tried to fend off his English enemies. Wow. Yeah, a contemporary writer described how he knocked down a good number. Some had their arms broken, others their heads smashed in, (laughs) another had his collarbone shattered. But Eustace's luck was about to run out. Soon he was overwhelmed by his foes, and after attempting to escape, he was dragged on deck and decapitated. (laughs) And after that, his severed head was fixed on a spear and paraded around the southern ports of England, not just one town, but like all the ports, to reassure (laughs) their residents that this fearsome pirate was finally dead. And uh, the people celebrated his bloody demise long and lustily. Wow. <laughs> like, he sounds more like an MMA fighter than a monk. Like, you don't... Yeah. <laughs> well, what do you think one of those M stands for, Jennifer? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Very good I point. am ready. I, monk martial arts absolutely needs to become a thing, you guys. I'd watch Heck it. Heck yeah. <laughs> so how had a former Benedictine monk become reviled for his lust for loot and violence? And what was a man who had once dedicated his life to the service of God doing, throwing his weight behind a French invasion of England? Well, Eustace was born around 1170, and Mm. though Eustace started his early life as a knight, the call of the sea proved really strong, and he quickly mastered the skills of seamanship through extensive travels. According to The Romance of Eustace the Monk, which is a poem penned by an anonymous author who enthusiastically embellished fact with fiction, uh, (laughs) Eustace quickly turned up at the Castilian city of Toledo, which was a notorious center of black magic, where, according to this anonymous author, we're told that he learned the dark arts of necromancy in a cave. Can we assume that the anonymous author is Eustace himself? Like, that seems pretty clear. (laughs) (laughs) I, I wonder when he would have had time to write it in the middle of his very Mm. exciting and notorious life, but I like that. That's going in my (laughs) head now forever. So for the chroniclers, one of whom may have been Eustace himself, it was as if the devil himself had become Eustace's mentor. And then something completely unexpected happened. He became a monk. The authors are not sure why Eustace chose to join the Benedictines at the monastery of St. Samer near Boulogne, but one thing is for sure. If anyone would have been bad at the reflective life of being a monk, it was Eustace. Uh, (laughs) He probably just wanted a cover story. It was witness protection. He was hiding (laughs) from somebody and he had to get underground. So the thing is that this all happened before his invasion of England. So like this was early on after being a knight. You know, maybe this was his master plan all along. He was like, this is my long con. But so no sooner had he joined the monastery than we're told that he was performing many devilish acts. He encouraged the brothers to eat when they should have been fasting, (gasps) curse when they should have been reciting the office, and he urged them to fart in the cloister. Oh, no! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it wasn't long before he left, unsurprisingly, or more probably was ejected from the Benedictines, Mm -hmm. but from that moment on, his epithet was sealed, and he would always be known as Eustace the Monk. (laughs) Next, he landed a job as a seneschal to the powerful Count of Boulogne, Renaud de Martin, and a seneschal is sort of an administrative officer. Hmm. But it does seem that he was soon up to his old tricks again as he was accused of financial impropriety. And I love how this entire story is like summed up in two sentences. Like there's so much more to get into that we can't even focus on that. Uh, So fearing prison, Eustace fled and began a new career, this time as a bandit. And the legend really takes off here where he and his men engage in a series of outrageous escapades, robbery, lightning raids, dramatic escapes as they pursued the former monk's vendetta against the count. Wait, was this like part of the Robin Hood mythology at all? I mean, I know that we cast these, you know, robbers and brigands in a good light, but this is starting to feel a little Friar Tuck to me. Yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question. I mean, literally the next part of this story talks about how much of a Robin Hood element there is to these tales. Hmm. Um, At one point in the romance, he takes on the garb of a leper with a bell to trick Count Renaud into giving him money as charity. And we're told that he bound up one of his legs to play the part of a one-legged beggar, again deceiving the Count into (laughs) handing money over a second time before promptly jumping onto one of the Count's horses and riding off with his crutch just hanging at the side. (laughs) Wait, this is the same Count that he was a seneschal for earlier? Yes. So he's he's like disguising himself and getting away with it twice after the guy fired him? Yeah, he really does not like this count. He hates this count. (laughs) On 
another occasion, Eustace dressed up as a woman and approached one of the Count's young knights, and he said, Let me get on this horse, and I will give you a... Well, I'll give you four hints. The first letter is F, and the next three are asterisks. <laughs> and the knight is keen to pay for this indecent proposal, so Eustace entices him further, declaring, I will teach you how to use your bum. And... <laughs> As the man lifts Eustace's leg, Eustace, quote, let out a fart, unquote. <laughs> and the story ends with Eustace stealing the knight's horse, of course. So, Yeah, see, all of this is... happened in the animated Disney version of Robin Hood. The little fox dude dressed up as a poor beggar. He dressed up as a lady. Like, I, this guy is Robin Hood as far as I'm concerned. Holy crap, you're right. I totally forgot about those specific disguises. Wow. I don't remember the farts, but No, yes. I don't think that was in the Disney version. <laughs> yeah. So there is a dark side to these humorous tales, though. When Eustace captures five of the Count's men-at-arms, he cuts off the feet of four of them Ooh. and tells the fifth to convey a message to the Count. Uh, what is even darker is that Eustace seizes one of the court's spies, who is a young boy, and forces him to hang himself without even the opportunity to make a confession. Oh, like that's the worst part about it, that he didn't get to confess before he died. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the whole thing was pretty bad. Right. So <laughs> Eustace's cunning and cruelty had earned him quite a reputation in the environs of Boulogne, and soon he'd be making waves on the other side of the English Channel, too. Because by early 1206, he had actually started working for King John of England. Eustace had picked an opportune moment to ally himself with the English king, for John was in the middle of a bitter struggle to wrest the Duchy of Normandy back from the French. John recognized Eustace's maritime ability and gave him command of 30 galleys. Whoa. Like, this guy went from being a forest bandit to now uh, commanding uh, a ship. Like, 30 like ships. 30 which ships, is just, yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't long before Eustace was using these vessels to devastating effect. His force of English, Flemish, and French sailors seized Sark, which is one of the Channel Islands, and set up a pirate base from where they launched a series of raids against the French seaports. Oof. And Eustace's pirates were doing a lot of this. They were terrorizing mm. ships all over the channel of all nations. And that also included English ships as well. So mm. he earned himself a notorious reputation in the ports and towns of England's south coast. So much so that if he wanted to land in England to conduct business or to visit his wife and daughter, which he got sometime along Did the way. Did technically have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he first had to literally gain a safe conduct pass to do so. Sometime between 1212 and 1214, he and John fell out. And there's a bunch of reasons why the relationship hit the rocks. Uh, money was possibly one factor. The chronicler known as the Anonymous of Bethune relates that when Eustace failed to repay a debt of 20 marks to John, he and his wife were imprisoned. And according to the romance, the king had Eustace's daughter, at the time John's hostage, burned, disfigured, and killed. Kind of rough. Yeah, but John's perennial mistrust of those who he deemed to have grown too powerful might have also contributed to that. Mm. But the principal bone of contention between the king and monk were probably Eustace's old enemy, Count Renaud of Boulogne. That's mm. right, that same old guy from before. Mm -hmm. uh, oh my gosh. In 1212, the count decided to switch sides in the Anglo-French War and throw his support behind John. And John apparently welcomed him with open arms because Renaud's lands were a huge boon to the king and those assets were well worth just putting Eustace out for. Whatever the reason, by early 1215, the ever-opportunistic Eustace had switched sides in the war and presented himself to the French court. The romance actually reports the first meeting between the two men. 
Philip is reportedly saying, you are not big, but small, yet you are so brave and bold. You know a great deal about guile and cunning and do not need a cat's grease to help you. (laughs) I'm going to remember that one. (laughs) Yeah. Eustace was appointed Philip's admiral for the channel and now with the war against England entering a dramatic new phase, embarked upon the most intense and spectacular military chapter of his career. In May 1216, Prince Louis invaded England, quickly seizing half the country and receiving the homage of up to two-thirds of England's barons. And I actually had no idea that this much of England was conquered by the French way back when. Yeah. So that was pretty interesting. Eustace played a major role in this invasion, ferrying troops and supplies across the Channel. In spring of 1217, he proved his worth once more by dramatically breaking through an English blockade of the coastal town of Rye and rescuing Louis, who was trapped there. Uh, (laughs) Guys had a lot going on. Yeah, epic. Unfortunately, a few months later, Louis needed Eustace's help once again because he suffered a big defeat at the Battle of Lincoln in May 1217, and the French prince found himself holed up in London, desperately needing the monk to provide the supplies and reinforcements he required to continue waging his campaign. Eustace set sail for England in August, but on the 24th, his feat was intercepted and annihilated by the English at Sandwich, which was a defeat that would ultimately force Louis to return to France with his tail between his legs. And according to the chronicler Roger of Wendover, when Eustace faced his end on the deck of his flagship, the last words he heard were, Never again in this world, wicked traitor, shall you deceive anyone with your false promises. <laughs> Although the romance focuses on his escapades as an outlaw, it was really in his role as a pirate and an admiral that Eustace made his most telling impact on 13th century Europe. It certainly oh. was not in his role as a monk. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty amazing that that moniker stuck the whole time. I mean, I guess probably it was partly because everybody thought it was as funny as, as we do, just to be like, oh yeah, Eustace the monk. He's this brutal yeah. fighter who's on the sea all the time. <laughs> I, I can imagine Eustace the dread monk. That's pretty sick. There you go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> dread monk Eustace. I'd be on board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from Heritage Daily. It's called Who Were the Sea People? And yeah, I'll be honest as a little preface to this. I walk around feeling like I'm pretty smart, right? Like I got my nice little (laughs) well-rounded liberal arts degree. I'm actively interested in history. And while I certainly don't claim to be an expert on most things, I usually have at least a sense of my blind spots, right? Like I know what it is Mm -hmm. I don't know. Sure. Not this time. (laughs) Yeah. This article made me feel so dumb. It was really embarrassing. (laughs) So it's, it starts in familiar territory, right? So during the late Bronze Age and early Iron Age, there was apparently a widespread simultaneous collapse of civilizations across the Near East, Aegean, Anatolia, North Africa, the Caucasus, the Balkans, and the Eastern Mediterranean. Historians Whoa. describe this period as the worst disaster in ancient history. And what? there are various theories behind the collapse, because we really don't know, right? There was written records back then, but it's very, very old. Mm-hmm. Possibilities are environmental factors, right? There could have been a drought. There could have been a volcano eruption. Or it could have been social, right? If there was a sudden technological change in warfare or maybe a Cold War situation where, like, major trade routes were disrupted. Or it might have been the elusive sea people. <gasps> right. Ooh. And so I'm reading this. I'm like, oh, an ancient civilization I've never heard of. This is going to be good, right? So here's where we start going off the rails. Whatever the cause was, it ended the Hittite Empire, the Mycenaean kingdoms, the Kassites, the Ugarit, the Amorite states, and the palace economy of the Aegean. 
Right. So now I'm thinking like, oh, wow, I've heard of some of those, but several of those yeah. civilizations are completely new to me. Yeah. Which is great. Very interesting. So the written record from this time is pretty sparse, but many of these collapsed civilizations contain some reference right around that time to a seafaring people or an unknown invader. And a research paper by historian Matthew J. Adams notes hundreds of possible references to them throughout the area, right? There was definitely somebody out there attacking from the sea. And it's Hmm. unusual that nobody knew who these guys were already, because like I mentioned, there were trade routes, there was written language. All of these civilizations had a pretty good sense of who their neighbors were. And pretty much nobody knew who these random sea bandits were who kept coming in and just destroying them. It was Eustace. Right. It was. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, this is about that same time it could have been. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so one ancient Egyptian narrative from the reign of Ramses III records waves of invasions by seafaring peoples. And one of the battles was even depicted on his Medinet Habu Mortuary Temple in Thebes, where Ramses III is shown forcing back the invaders during the Battle of the Delta around 1175 B.C. Oh, no, hang on. B.C., not A.D. Never mind. Nowhere near Eustace's time. (laughs) (laughs) I was totally wrong about that. So, and the inscription in the temple simply calls them the northern countries, as in, now the northern countries, which were in their isles, are quivering in their bodies. Their nostrils have ceased to function. His majesty has gone forth like a whirlwind against them, fighting on the battlefield like a runner. The dread of him and the terror of him have entered in their bodies. They are capsized and their weapons are scattered in the sea. Oof. Yeah. Wow. But the reason it's inscribed in his tomb is because it's a rare instance where the Egyptians actually won the battle. The majority of the battles against the sea people they lost. Most of them indicate quite brutal losses, such as a narrative from the reign of Ramses II when, quote, the unruly warriors came boldly sailing in their warships from the midst of the sea, none being able to withstand them. So this is the point where I collapsed into a puddle of stupidity, because though (laughs) historians have never figured out who the sea people were, there are some theories. And the Egyptian texts in particular name nine ancient civilizations that they thought might have been responsible. The Denyen, the Ekwesh, the Luka, the Peliset, the Shekelesh, the Sherdan, the Teresh, the Tjeker, and the Weshesh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah I can't there. even, like, place the nomenclature. Like, is that Middle East? No, it can't be because it's seafaring. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and these may all be, like, the Egyptian names for those civilizations. Mm. So who knows what mm-hmm. they really were. But the fact is, I've never heard of any of them. And yet every yeah. single one was apparently large enough and advanced enough To make the Egyptians think that they potentially had a massive seafaring army that could take out everyone else in the area. Holy cat. The Egyptians themselves barely made it out alive. If the Egyptians had lost, we might just, you know, be learning all about the Ekwesh history of the great civilization and not even have ever heard of the Egyptian. Be like, Egyptian? What is that weird word? Like, it's just, yeah, there's so much (laughs) out there that we just, somebody knows, apparently, but not me. I I had never heard of any of these guys. So Amazing. And that remains a mystery. You know, we still don't have any idea who the sea people were, other than the fact that everybody at the time was terrified of them. 
some <laughs> modern theories have sort of, you know, they might have been like the Etruscans. They might have come from the south of Europe, right? They might have been scary white people. But yeah, I, I like to think that maybe they still exist. It's sort of like the human version of Bigfoot. Like the sea people right, might I mean, show have up. we Atlantis, right? Like that yeah. didn't yeah. come up once in your article? <laughs> Not in this article, but I, I think it was an oversight, frankly. They should have mentioned it. <laughs> I think they were probably very intentional about like, do not mention Atlantis. Right, right, right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, we're starting to get a little bit close to lunchtime, so I got a question for you guys. Okay. Do you like grapefruit? No. (laughs) (laughs) A very lukewarm and tepid response. Well, (laughs) you know what? That's okay, because according to Atlas Obscura, and after reading this article, I'm inclined to agree, grapefruit is one of the weirdest fruits on the planet. Hmm. The current theory is that somewhere around five or six million years ago, one parent of all citrus varieties splintered into separate species, probably due to some kind of change in climate. And three citrus fruits in particular spread the most widely, the citron, the pomelo, and the mandarin. There Mm. were some others that were scattered around Asia and the South Pacific, but those are the three citrus species that are the most important, at least for this story. So with the exception of some weirdos like the finger lime, which has kind of a caviar-like substance or texture, Hmm. all other citrus fruits are derived from natural and before long artificial crossbreeding. And then the crossbreeding, the crossbreeds, and so on of those three fruits. So if you mix like certain pomelos and certain mandarins, you get a sour orange. And if you cross that sour orange with a citron, you get a lemon. Mm. It's kind of like blending and reblending primary colors, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And grapefruit in particular is a mix between the pomelo, a base fruit, and a sweet orange, which is a hybrid of a pomelo and a mandarin. And because those base fruits are all native to Asia, the vast majority of hybrid citrus fruits are also from Asia. But grapefruit is not. In fact, the grapefruit was first found a world away in Barbados, probably in the mid-1600s. Citrus trees had been planted casually by Europeans all over the West Indies, with hybrids springing up all over the place, and very little documentation of who planted what and what mixed with what. And this part of this is because citrus naturally hybridizes when two varieties are planted near each other. Hmm. So careful growers, even back in the 1600s, would use tactics like spacing or grafting, where you put one part of the tree attached to the rootstock of another to avoid hybridizing. But in the West Indies at the time, nobody bothered. <laughs> Just plant it everywhere and see what happens. <laughs> see what happens. And sometimes it didn't work very well. Like many citrus varieties, due to being excessively inbred, don't even create a fruiting tree when grown from seed. But other times, random chance could result in something special. And the grapefruit they're thinking is probably one of these. Then the word probably is warranted there because none of the history of the grapefruit is especially clear. And part of the problem is that the word grapefruit wasn't even recorded until the 1830s. And this has always kind of struck me as weird. Why do we even call it a grapefruit? It is a citrus, right? Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So before it was recorded as a grapefruit in written documentation, it was known as the shaddock which is especially confusing because shaddock is also a word used for the pomelo. (laughs) And the pomelo is what provides the bitterness for all bitter citrus fruits to follow. I'm sure you guys have seen in the early days of the internet, there's a picture of like a white cat with like a green citrus helmet hair rind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a pomelo. Oh, see, I always assumed it was a lime. But now (laughs) thinking about it, it's way too small to fit on a cat's head. So yeah, all right, that was a pomelo. Exactly. And it's got a much thicker kind of spongier rind. And and Mm. it's very bitter, so it's kind of an acquired taste, but that's kind of what they're thinking led to the grapefruit. 
So the name grapefruit, right? It's commonly stated that the word comes from the fact that grapefruits grow in bunches like grapes, but there's a pretty good chance this isn't true. In 1664, a Dutch physician named Wouter Schurden visited Barbados and described the citrus he sampled there as tasting like unripe grapes. Hmm. And then in 1814, a British plantation and slave owner from Jamaica reported that this fruit was named on account of its resemblance in flavor to the grape. But y'all, grapefruit doesn't taste anything like grapes. No, it doesn't. Yeah, that's bizarre to me. (laughs) Plus, there were no vine grapes in Barbados by 1698. So according to this theory, the people of the island would not have even known what grapes tasted like. In <laughs> fact, the only native grape-like plant is the sea grape, which grows in great numbers all around the Caribbean, but isn't a grape at all. It's in the buckwheat family. However, it does produce clusters of fruit that look an awful lot like grapes and are not particularly tasty. In mm. fact, they're kind of sour and a little bitter, not unlike the grapefruit. Mm. So the article also goes into how grapefruit came into the American mainland by a Frenchman named Odette Philippe. The grapefruit had a huge impact in the expansion and development of Florida, as well as having a railroad system that could transport all of these fruits. One of the railroads was even called the Orange Belt Railway. And, you know, you guys have probably heard of something called the grapefruit diet. It started in the 1930s, but it's basically a low calorie diet where all you eat is grapefruit. And yes, if you're eating 500 calories a day, you're probably going to lose weight. Yeah. (laughs) So it's got this kind of long association as being a very healthful fruit, right? There's something about the bitter, sour and sweet that kind of registers as medicinal. Right. Like if it tastes gross, it has to be good for you. That seems like (laughs) a logic there. (laughs) Exactly. But this is especially ironic because the grapefruit is actually one of the most destructive foes of modern medicine Mm. in the entire food world. (laughs) This is like the money stuff to me because I had no idea about this. So there's a researcher, Bailey, he works with the Canadian government, among others, to test medications in different circumstances to see how humans react to them. So in 1989, he was working on a blood pressure drug called philodipine, trying to figure out if alcohol affected response to the drug. And so the way to test this is you have a control group and experimental group, one that takes the drug with alcohol and one that takes it with water and nothing at all. But if you want it to be double blind, you have to disguise the taste of alcohol so the subjects don't know they're drinking it. So the researcher and his wife basically just tried everything in the refrigerator, right? They mixed (laughs) pharmaceutical grade booze with all kinds of juices. Nothing was really working. The alcohol always came through. But at the end, they tried grapefruit juice and you could not tell. It masked the alcohol taste. So he decided to give his experimental subjects a cocktail of alcohol and grapefruit juice, a greyhound, right? And the control (laughs) group just got pure grapefruit juice. Uh And the results of the study were totally weird. When Bailey looked at the amount of the drug in the subject's bloodstreams, the levels were about four times higher for the doses they were taking. So philodipine doesn't really have any ill effects at high dosage. He figured it would be safe and he was curious. So he (laughs) tested it on himself. And so here's what they found out. The human body has mechanisms to break down stuff that ends up in the stomach. Duh. The one involved here is cytochrome P450, a group of enzymes that are really important for converting various substances to inactive forms. And drug makers, when they're figuring out their dosage formulation, they factor in the cytochrome P450. Mm-hmm. And for some drugs, it's very little, sometimes as little as 10%. And so they'll adjust the dosage to make sure that it contains more of the drug because they know the bioavailability is only going to be this amount. But grapefruit has a high volume of compounds called furanocumarins, which are designed to protect the fruit from fungal infections. So when you ingest grapefruit, 
these furanocumarins permanently take your cytochrome P450 enzymes offline. It just kills these cytochromes. So the body, when it encounters grapefruit, just sighs, throws up his hands, and starts producing new sets of these cytochrome P450, which can take over 12 hours. Wow. So if you have a drug with 10% bioavailability, the drug makers, assuming that all you have are these intact cytochrome P450s, will prescribe you 10 times the amount of the drug you actually need because so little actually makes it to your bloodstream. But in the presence of grapefruit, without those cytochromes, you're not getting 10% of the drug, you're getting 100%, and now you're overdosing. And wow. it's lasting for 12 hours. Like you drink it in the morning, the medication you take at dinner time is still going to be affected. Exactly right. So wow. and it doesn't take a lot of grapefruit juice to have this effect. Less than a single cup can be enough to create this effect. So I know this is getting long, but uh, this is almost a public service <laughs> announcement. Right? Yeah, I had seriously. no idea about this. It's incredibly common. And here's a brief and incomplete list of some of the medications that can get screwed up by grapefruit. Benzos like Xanax, Clonopin, and Valium. Amphetamines like Adderall and Ritalin, anti-anxiety SSRIs like Zoloft and Paxil, cholesterol-lowering statins like Lipitor and Crestor, erectile dysfunction drugs like Cialis and Viagra, and various over-the-counter meds like Tylenol, Allegra, Prilosec, and then the bullet list ends with, and about a hundred others. <laughs> it's hard to tell from the statistics, but it seems certain that some people have probably died eating grapefruit. And in part of that, it's because... <laughs> Grapefruit is a favorite of older Americans, plus older Americans are also much more likely to take a lot of pills, yeah. some of which may interact with grapefruit. In Canada, they have these warnings all over the place, but right. the FDA just says, you know, we'll have it in the big booklet of information you get when you have your prescriptions or talk to your doctor. Yeah. I think they're just assuming nobody drinks grapefruit juice. They're like, this stuff is, this stuff's nasty. Why would anybody drink it? That may be, but the United States produces more grapefruit than any other country uh. from Florida and now California. So this is something to be aware of. Um, yeah. It's a great in-depth article. Do your homework or go to Canada because they always have the label on the pills. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from news.sky.com. It is titled, Human Microevolution Sees More People Born Without Wisdom Teeth and an Extra Artery. Ooh. That actually sounds quite helpful. Yeah, not having wisdom teeth would have been amazing. That would have saved right? me a lot of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so babies now have shorter faces, smaller jaws, and extra bones in their legs and feet, a uh. study in the Journal of Anatomy found. Australian researchers who worked on the paper claim the human race is evolving faster than it has been at any point in the past 250 years. Hmm. So Dr. Tegan Lucas from Flinders University Adelaide says, a lot of people thought humans have stopped evolving, but our study shows that we're still evolving faster and faster than any point in the last 250 years. An artery in the forearm that supplies blood to the hand has become more prevalent in newborns since the 19th century as well. Hmm. This median artery used to form in the womb, but disappear after the baby's born and the radial and ulna arteries had grown. But now... One in three people keep their median arteries for their whole lives, which poses no health risk and actually increases blood supply to the hand. So it is really useful. Yeah, yeah it and seems good for like fine motor stuff. It says we're using our hands more. Oh, those yeah. touch screens, man. You've seen babies <laughs> with them. They need that blood flow. <laughs> yeah, and all the keyboards as well. Mm -hmm. Makes me wonder if I have one because I can type quite fast. <laughs> Anyways, author Professor Masij uh, Henneberg said, this is microevolution in modern humans. 
And this research was carried out by tracking the rate of retainment of different parts of the body through the generations and dissecting preserved corpses of people born throughout the 20th century. Yeah, well, and I can tell you right now, my son, he's 14, he is missing two teeth. Not his wisdom teeth, it's the two right on either side of his two front teeth. And they discovered that back when he was like five, because they do x-rays of the dentist now just routinely. And they Mm. showed me, they're like, oh, here's all his permanent teeth up inside his skull forming, and those teeth are missing. And at the time, I was like, that seems really weird and insane. And the dentist is like, no, no, it happens about 5% of people. And I was like, oh. And and so what they said he's going to have to do, he's already doing braces and stuff to get this going, is either we can shove all the teeth to the front, just act like they were never supposed to be there, but then he looks kind of like a vampire because the canines (gasps) will be too far forward. Yes! So they're like, like, in that case, we shave the teeth down so they don't look so sharp. Or... You can open it up more, make a big old gap where those teeth should have been, and put in two fake teeth. Vampire! And, go vampire! Well, <laughs> we, we went the other direction. <laughs> because in, in, his, in his case, he has a, a, a really small jaw, and they were like, it would be beneficial for, like, sinus reasons to open it up. So, like, it's a whole mm. deal. But mm-hmm. they were like, yeah, this is, like, a really common thing, and it's not a big deal. And every orthodontist and dentist along the way has been like, oh, yeah, some people are missing teeth. Um, wow. So, wow. yeah, maybe he's further along the evolutionary path, or maybe it's a dead end and it's not going to serve him well. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I believe that that is evolutionary progress. It's, it's yeah, and I love that we have just, like, these aesthetic choices to make about it as right. well, you know, that balance against health. Yeah, we live in a time where we can account for these sorts of things. Like, I was basically legally blind as a kid. If I didn't live in an era where we had glasses and then LASIK surgery, I absolutely would have walked off a cliff as soon as I could start walking. Like, I I should not be alive. So, like, the fact that we can compensate for these things is good. I just, I wonder what it's doing to our evolution, the fact that we're letting all these poor vision people proliferate like me. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we're all just headed towards the Matrix. That's the inevitable conclusion that's right. of all this. We don't need as long as I get bodies. my vampire teeth, that's fine by me. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's where some of the lore comes from, you know, just that's the right. 5%. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, this last one comes from TechCrunch. It's called, These Tiny Sensors Can Hitch a Ride on Mothback. Aww. Yeah, it's very cute. Basically, it's a new research project by grad students at the University of Washington, led by Shyam Golakota. He has designed a system of attaching tiny sensors to moths for delivery into hard-to-reach places. And Golakota has been doing this stuff for a while. Over the last several years, he's pioneered things like bee backpacks. You may have heard of those a while back. Uh, Mm. And related technology like super low-power video transmission, so we can actually get the signal back from wherever the bee backpacks are going. But he notes, of course, we're always trying to do a little better, and moths are actually better than bees in this case because they can traverse through narrower spaces and sustain much longer flights than other insects. Apparently, bees get tired and moths don't. I don't know. Hmm. However, they're also not as strong. So part of the new breakthrough was getting the sensor small enough. And this most recent version weighs less than one one one-hundredth of an ounce. Which, I mean, that's nothing. Like, I don't don't understand how you can make a piece of metal. Whisper thin. Yeah. Another big breakthrough in the newest model is they're detachable upon command. So the bee backpacks, the early versions, were permanently attached to the bee, and the bees were just flying around getting video, I guess. But these (laughs) moth sensors are held on with a tiny magnetic pin that can be deactivated via wireless signal and dropped off the back of the moth whenever the owner decides that the moth has flown into a suitable spot. I mean, basically, you, you have a payload delivery to wherever you want it to go. 
And the sensor is also equipped with a power sipping board that is designed to use the least amount of battery life as possible. So once it's dropped, it can last for years, sending data back consistently to its owner. Wow. And, and, you know, potential uses for this. Of course, Golakota wants to focus on the ecological uses, such as like Mm -hmm. putting a light sensor or moisture or temperature sensor that could give us a trove of data about areas of the world that are extremely hard for humans to reach. Right. But as the final line of the article notes, you could also use it to sneak a mic into a top secret area. But I'm sure no one would try that. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure no one's already tried that. Right. I mean, it's, it's basically a surveillance tool that it turns out we could also use for ecology. Like, I don't think... (laughs) I don't think there's a lot of funding in ecological data. I think this thing is going to be used for nefarious purposes pretty soon. But it'll be really cute, and it'll fly in on the back of a moth. So That is really cute. (laughs) And, you know, basically we're only one step away from Mothra at this point. We just got to (gasps) engineer a bigger moth, put a payload on the back. (laughs) We're going to need a bigger backpack. (laughs) Mothra's not supposed to elicit an awe response. He was a brutal (laughs) murderer. Come on. (laughs) I know, but he was also a moth. Wasn't it a she? Wasn't Mothra a she? I don't know. Was Mothra a she? Yeah, I think so, actually. Oh, Mm -hmm. well, then more power to her. (laughs) I'm in favor of Mothra now. (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not get to today include a Chilean raspberry scam. Hidden cameras and secret trackers reveal where Amazon returns end up. And the rise and fall of Vanilla Ice, as told by Vanilla Ice. We will be off next week for a rare vacation, but have no fear. We will be back on the 30th, and we hope that you will join us then. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.